If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And we are looking this morning at the introduction to this wonderful epistle epistle of Paul. And that's the first seven verses, Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith of all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, again, we ask now, open our eyes, open our ears, give us hearts that would understand this wonderful word that you have given us. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. We know your son said that, and it is so true. Father, we depend on you for our lives. We depend on you for all our resources. We depend on you for every spiritual grace. Father, come this morning in the power of your spirit, I pray. Help me, Lord, not to speak anything that is not in your word. Guide and direct our hearts and thoughts toward you. And Father, bless your people for your sake. Help us all to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Please be seated once again. Well, by way of a quick recap, last week we were looking at uh, the introduction to the introduction, really just verse 1 of the book of Romans. And we saw that this is uh, an epistle that Paul wrote toward the end of his third missionary journey Uh, while he was in Corinth and on his way back to Jerusalem with a uh, love offering, money, that he had taken up from the uh, churches of Achaia and Macedonia, the southern and the northern provinces of modern-day Greece. And as he's on his way back, he stops in Corinth, and he writes this letter to the Romans. Now, what's interesting is this is not, I don't believe I mentioned this last week, but this is not a church that Paul himself planted In fact, we don't know exactly who planted this church in Rome, but what we do know is that if you read the account of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what we know is that there were visitors to Jerusalem, where Pentecost happened, um, from Rome. And they heard and saw the mighty deeds of God that day as his spirit was poured out and filled the 120 disciples And they were filled with the Spirit of God and spoke with other tongues. And that was signified by the cloven tongues of fire over their heads. And what we heard, or what they heard, the visitors to Jerusalem, was all the wonderful works of God in their own languages, in known languages that they understood. And so it is likely, in all probability, that some of those who were visiting from Rome went back and planted this church. And Paul is writing to them as an apostle. They had never received apostolic instruction before. And so he is writing not to correct bad doctrine or bad theology or problems per se in the church as he had done with other churches like the Corinthians, but to encourage them in the gospel of Christ, that they would be established, that they would be fixed firm in the gospel and grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have here in these first seven verses really is what I think you could call a summary of the gospel. And uh, it's almost as if Paul is so excited and moved by this gospel that he can't wait to just get it out there. He really expands on these seven verses throughout the entire epistle to the Romans. But in these first seven, he captures the gospel. And so this morning, that is really going to be our focus, is looking at this gospel. And so what we saw last week is Paul, who is a bondservant, That word, again, means slave of Christ. He was called, called by God effectually, 
called to be an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent. He was a messenger, an emissary of the Lord who was um, commissioned to go forth and preach the gospel. This morning we're picking up where we left off, which is the last part of verse 1, where it says, separated to the gospel of God. So Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Separated. Separated means sanctified. It means set apart for. So you could read this. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, this is God's purpose for him. This is what he is to do to herald this gospel. In fact, this is the same word that is used in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, where it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul, who is Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Separate to me. Cut them out from the world and all of the ambitions and uh, desires and thrust of direction that they had going in their life and set them over here in my direction to the gospel. And so this is the work that Paul was called to do for his master. This is the primary purpose of the slave of Christ. He has a message and he's heralding, he's proclaiming this message. And what is that message? Well, it's called the gospel. The gospel, it's a word that we use all the time, but do we really know what the gospel means? So I'd like to unpack this a little bit this morning. The word itself, gospel, is best translated good news or glad tidings. The word in the Greek is evangelion, which is actually two Greek words together. Ev, which means good, and angelion, which sounds like angelos. Angelos is angel or message, messenger, which has a message. So it's the good message, the evangelion, the glad tidings. It's an announcement or proclamation of good news. Friends, we have a lot of bad news all the time in this world, don't we? And it seems to be only getting worse. We have bad news about what's going on in the economy. We have bad news about political unrest. We have social unrest. We have concerns about biological unrest, COVID, and all the mutations that it may take in the future and the threat that that poses for everyone. We have cyber threats, right? Everyone is digital these days, and your security is constantly being threatened. Your identity itself is being threatened. And most fundamentally, we have the building blocks of society crumbling around us. We have the redefinition of marriage, as God defined it. We have the disintegration of the family. We have mass murder of the unborn every day. We have crime and drug use and suicide, and the list goes on and on. And friends, if you only heard the headlines and received the notifications, you would be a very depressed person and probably driven to despair yourself. But take heart, friends. I have good news for you this morning. And it's the good news that Paul is heralding. It is the news, the good news of the gospel. So I would ask the question, why is this good news? And you should ask that question too. Well, fundamentally, the gospel is good news because it is of God. We're told it is the gospel of God. It originates in God himself. Because God himself is the essence of goodness. Why is it good news? Because it's God's message and he himself is good. There's another word that we use casually, right? Oh, I like that. That's good. Don't like that. That's bad. I like that. That's good. But really, it is a very special word. Goodness is one of the attributes of God. Goodness means benevolence. It means the kindness of God. He makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, right? And he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust, the goodness of God. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, Paul tells us in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 4. It is the goodness of God that concerns him to benefit others, to do what's best for them. So you can see how goodness is very closely tied with the sacrificial love of God. 
Man in sin is totally the opposite of good. He is purely selfish. He only looks to satisfy his own lust, which means strong desire, a strong propensity that he has in himself to sin. And he's willing to consume everything and everyone around him in the pursuit of those strong desires. This is why the scriptures say there is no one who does good, not even one. Man is so tainted by sin that all he can do is serve himself. Even the altruistic person, even the person who is seemingly very sacrificial and who serves other people, if he or she is not motivated in that service by love to Christ, love to God, then even that selflessness is self-serving and pride-building, right? I mean, we saw that with, with the Apostle Paul, right? He did so much that he would have considered good, religious good. He had a whole laundry list of credentials. But that was before he met Christ. Once he met Christ on that road to Damascus, he threw all of that stuff out the window and he said, I count all that as refuse, trash, garbage. And I changed that, I exchanged that for the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the true riches. There's the true value. So the good man, the good man looks outward. He's concerned for others and he helps others. And this, loved ones, is our God. Everything that he does is right. This was our catechism this morning, right? He does all things according to the counsel of his own will. And as part of that, praise the Lord in his mercy, he is concerned for our welfare. So this is the gospel of God. He has good news for us and he wants us to know it. Another way of saying of God, the gospel of God, is to say it's not of man, right? You remember how Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word for moved is the word that describes the sail of a ship that's filled with wind. It's carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how God gave his word to men. It's not the opinion of men. He blew on them with his Holy Spirit. He moved them to speak his very word. It's not the opinion of men, but the word of God. One more point on these words of God, and I know that it seems like we're going probably very slowly through this text, but that's intentional as we're laying some groundwork here. These words of God, if you look at the grammar on this, it indicates possession of God, meaning uh, it's not the good news about God, it is actually God's own good news. It's his news that he is announcing, his message of glad tidings. So when we speak of sharing the gospel, the good news, we're not talking about man's idea. We're also not talking about a theologian's idea that he's derived from looking at a, a number of scriptures. It is a message that God himself originated, and he is sending out through his messengers. And brothers and sisters, we need discernment when we hear uh, the gospel, when we hear claims of what is the gospel. There was a wonderful blog that was written by Burke Parsons on the Ligonier site that I just wanted to share a part of with you. He says, in our day, there are countless counterfeit gospels, both inside and outside the church. Much of what is on Christian TV and on the shelves of Christian bookstores completely obscures the gospel obscures the gospel, thereby making it another gospel, which is no gospel at all. The English pastor J.C. Ryle wrote, since Satan cannot destroy the gospel, he has too often neutralized its usefulness by addition, subtraction, or substitution. It is vital we understand that just because a preacher talks about Jesus, the cross, and heaven does not mean he is preaching the gospel. And just because there is a church on every corner does not mean that the gospel is preached on every corner. Fundamentally, the gospel is good news. It's good news. 
about what our triune God has accomplished for his people. Remember that. It's not about what we do. It's what he has done. In the Father sending his Son, the incarnate Jesus Christ, to live perfectly, to fulfill the law and die sacrificially, satisfying God's wrath against us that we might not face hell, thereby atoning for our sins, covering our sins, and raising him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the victorious announcement that God saves sinners. And even though the call of Jesus to take up your cross and follow me, repent and believe, deny yourself, and keep my commandments are necessary commands that directly follow the proclamation of the gospel, they are not in themselves the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. The gospel is not a summons to work harder to reach God. It's the grand message of how God worked in all things together, excuse me, worked all things together for for good to reach us. It's good news. So Paul first identifies the gospel in this epistle as God's gospel. But also note that he identifies the gospel as the gospel of his son in verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. And he also refers to, excuse me, uh, a quick comment on that. Just pause for a moment. The gospel of God is the gospel of his son. Is that not a wonderful implied claim of deity that the son is God? Right? If, the, if God's gospel is the son's gospel, then the son is God. But he also refers to the gospel of Christ in verse 16 of chapter 1. Christ being the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah or anointed one. So it's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of the son. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this gospel, this good news, really is the theme, the central theme of Romans, and I would say, loved ones, really the theme of all of Scripture. And Paul refers to it time and time again. In Romans itself, he uses the word 16 times. In throughout his 13 epistles that Paul wrote, 60 times he uses this phrase, the gospel, this word, the gospel. In other words, this is a message that we must pay attention to. God is trying to tell us something important. When we look at how Paul describes this gospel in the book of Romans, there are some very interesting insights. And I just wanted to share a few things with you. One is we're told this gospel was promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's verse 2. We're going to get to that in just a moment. It's also concerning his son. It's centered around God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it's a message through which he, Paul, serves God. And serves in the sense of a priest serving, discharging a holy, sacred duty to the Lord. It's a message to be preached. Preached meaning heralded, proclaimed. Think of a a town crier, somebody who would go to the housetop of a roof and shout a message. That's the idea. It's a message that is to be preached and preached fully. Paul describes the gospel in verse 16 as the power of God to save the one who believes the message. By implication, he says it's a message about which one can feel shame. Because he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save. But to the, to the natural man, the gospel is offensive. And there's fear that we have as men and women in presenting something that is offensive to other people, right? We're told that it's a message of peace. We're also told it's the foundation of Jesus Christ upon which the church is built, and it is where Christ is named. It's a message that establishes the church, which means it sets the church, it fixes the church, it strengthens and firms up the church. And it's a message to be obeyed in chapter 10. I also found it fascinating to see just how the word gospel is used in the whole of the New Testament. Um, It's used... A hundred times, 100 times. And so, just for my own curiosity, I looked at all 100 instances and tried to group together um, a summary, really, of, of how the gospel is, is described by the Lord Jesus Christ, by Paul, uh, and the writer of the Hebrews. And what I came up with, with was this. The gospel is good news. It is God's own word of truth 
which is an everlasting message and one that cannot be corrupted. It's the promise of the blessed Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as one foreordained and determined from eternity past, and the glorious testimony of Christ himself when he comes in the flesh. It is concerning his death and concerning his resurrection from the dead. It's the message of the kingdom of God and of God's king. It's the message that comes not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance to the believer. It is God's uh, dynamite. The Greek word for power is dynamite. Literally the, the dynamite of God that he uses to raise those who are spiritually dead and save all who believe its message. It is God's power to abolish death itself and to bring light and eternal life to light through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a mystery which is veiled, obscured, to the one who is perishing, whose mind is blinded by the God of this world, who is Satan. But it's also, on the other hand, a message that is unveiled to those who turn to Christ, to the Lord, and to the light of his word, It's a message that can only be understood by faith. The writer to Hebrews tells us it must be mixed with faith in the hearer in order for it to be profitable, to be effective. And it's a a message that is to be preached to every creature under heaven, in every nation, every tribe, every language is to hear this gospel. You say all that? Yes, it's simple, but it's profound. And we're going to unpack it, Lord willing, as we go here. So, Paul, who is, again, gladly in the service of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, working only to do his will, is called, is set apart for this one task, to be his messenger of the good news, the gospel of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his one purpose, and it really must be our purpose as well, brothers and sisters. Verse 2, which he promised this gospel which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Whenever you see that God promised to do something, you can count on it. You can bank on it. Why? Because he is the God who cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19 tells us, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, which means change his mind. He's not like us. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. So God promised this message. And the question next is, well, when was this news promised? And Paul answers it, but he answers it maybe in a way that is a little bit obscure. He says, before. Before what? I think he answers this when he writes to Titus, and he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. That's when this was promised. The gospel was promised before time began, but has been in due time manifested. He's manifested his word. He's brought it about through preaching, which he says was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. This promise of eternal life of the gospel was initiated in eternity past within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father planned that he would redeem humanity, a group within humanity, his elect, his sheep. And he gifted them as a love gift to the Son, Jesus Christ. The Son then came to earth to do, to execute the will of his Father, right? And to to complete his will, to do his good pleasure. And he did this by laying down his life for us, paying the penalty for sin that is due from all of us apart from Christ, which is death eternal death. But he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead on the third day, and he is exalted. He has been glorified, raised to heaven, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is now seated and reigns. And then the Spirit was poured out, was given that this work which the Son executed, which was planned by the Father, that the Spirit would apply to us by causing us to be regenerated, born again, given new hearts, circumcised from within, sanctified, made holy, more like Christ over time. 
And one day he is going to bring us to glory. We will be completely free of sin because the Spirit will have his perfect work within us. So all of this was planned concerning the Son and concerning redemption from eternity past. But we're told next that it was promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So you mean the gospel is not just the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's not. It's not a new message at all. It's actually a very old one, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And this would have been particularly relevant for the Apostle Paul in this time when he was writing, because we are told in Acts chapter 21 that Paul's Jewish opponents accused him of teaching something new. They accused him of teaching against the people, against the Jewish people, of teaching against the law, of teaching against this place, which was Jerusalem, where they were. And you remember, they, they, they sought to lay hands on him, to arrest him, and they wanted to kill him. But this was not a new message at all. This was the teaching promised beforehand and given to the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Listen to Paul a few chapters later in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. What he means is the righteousness of God apart from any man's obedience to the law has been witnessed or spoken of by the law and the prophets. Well, it's a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament. In the Old Testament scriptures, they spoke of this. And what did they speak? They spoke of the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. That there is a righteous one coming who will fulfill every righteous requirement of God's law. The perfect man, the God-man. God is putting his son on display as the righteousness of God. The Apostle Peter also shed some light on these prophets of old who spoke of the Messiah to come. Would you turn in your, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Marvelous passage with incredible insight. The prophets were given revelation concerning the Christ, but the fullness of that revelation was concealed until Christ actually came, until he was manifested in the flesh and was vindicated by God as the true Son when he was raised from the dead by the Spirit and by the Father and by himself. That's a preview of verse 4. We're going to get to that. What the Old Testament conceals... The New Testament reveals. Uh, there is a concept in uh, uh, Scripture of progressive revelation. And it can be thought of, I think, in, in a couple of ways that's helpful for me. One is like a light dimmer on the wall. In the Old Testament times, the light was given, but it was dim by comparison. By comparison to when? To now. To when Christ has come. The dimmer's been turned all the way up. We now see clearly who the revealed Savior, Messiah of God is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Or think about it in terms of a volume switch. The volume was low in the Old Testament, but it's been cranked up full blast now, and we hear Jesus Christ preached. He is the Messiah. And so what is it exactly that these Old Testament prophets knew when they wrote these scriptures? Well, they were told by Peter that, they, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be glorified after his sufferings. And that knowledge, though, though limited, was sufficient for salvation because they believed God's word. They kept the promise of the gospel. They believed the light that was given to them 
even though it was little by comparison to what we have today. So how much more, brothers and sisters, should we put our trust, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ now that his arm, the arm of the Lord, has been revealed openly to all of us, to the whole world, to see by his resurrection from the dead, he is who he said he was. The very first instance of the gospel that we have in the scriptures is found in Genesis chapter 3. I'd invite you to turn there with me now. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which means first gospel. And it occurs immediately after the fall of man. In Genesis chapter 3, you remember that the Lord God had told Adam and Eve, do not, you may eat freely from any tree of the garden but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of that tree, he said what? You will surely die. And Eve was deceived by the serpent and ate of the fruit, and her husband um, completely failed his duty of protecting his wife and leading his wife, and he plunged all of humanity headlong into sin. And the Lord comes to them and says, verse 12, the man said, uh, excuse me, the Lord says, um, where are you, verse 9, to Adam, where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. So there, though it's not expanded in detail, is the first gospel. He, Christ, shall bruise your head, Satan. He is going to crush you, Satan. And you will just bruise his heel. And we see that that happened at the cross, right? But this is a cosmic conflict between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman that has endured ever since the beginning from the garden. And you see the suffering and the glory there, don't you? Satan will bruise the heel of the Lord, the suffering of Christ. But Christ will crush the head of Satan, glorious victory. It's good news. And the Spirit of Christ testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So against the dark backdrop of this fall of mankind, and by the way, that's the real bad news in the world, right? All this other stuff I mentioned at the beginning, yeah, it seems like bad news. This is the bad news. That we are sinners because Adam plunged us headlong into sin. We are sinners by... Um, Original sin, meaning we inherit the sin of Adam. He is our father. And so the deeds of our father, we inherit. But we also are sinners by choice. We sin because we want to sin. We are those who are sitting in darkness, apart from Christ. We're in the prison of sin. No desire to leave. It's when Jesus talked about the strong man armed who keeps his goods in peace. They are content where they are. Yes, they're prisoners, but they have no desire to leave. Why? Because they're in bondage. And they're in darkness. Until the stronger man comes and dispossesses that strong man armed. And that is Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. It's a message of hope for the hopeless. And it's about the seed of the woman. Who we know is Jesus Christ. The promised one who would be the savior of the world, who would put all things right again that went wrong in the garden, who is working to restore all things and to create a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. As Christians, we often speak about how Christ fulfilled all prophecy, right? We acknowledge that readily. A lot of prophecy and Christ fulfilled it all. 
But how often do we take the time to really see these prophecies and see them fulfilled? And so I wanted to take just a few minutes and just give you a sampling of these prophets of the Old Testament and the gospel that they spoke about the promised one in his sufferings and in his glories to follow. Listen to David about the suffering. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? That's a preview of Christ on the cross. Remember when he said that? Psalm 69, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Speaking of Christ as a substitute for sin. The sons of Korah in Psalm 88, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah, stop and consider. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Christ would bear the very wrath of God for his people. Isaiah, Isaiah 52, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred, his face, his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Christ, after he was scourged and beaten, was unrecognizable as a human being. He was so badly uh, beaten. Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Christ came to his own, remember, but they did not receive him. And not only was he rejected, but he was hated, and he was killed. And when Christ was being murdered on the cross, they thought that he was being punished for his own sins. Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Cut off, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself, not his own sin. Zechariah 13, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And after Jesus was arrested, isn't that exactly what happened? His disciples were fearful, and they were scattered. Now listen to the gospel in the Old Testament about the glories of Christ. Again, Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The king will reign and will have the obedience of all his people. David, Psalm 16, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, hell. You, or nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Christ was raised prophetically, on the third day before corruption set in. Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Christ the Lord is now victorious over all his enemies, sin, Satan, and death. Isaiah chapter 49, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He is not Savior of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, the nations. Daniel chapter 7, Then to him, referring to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. He is an eternal king. He lives forever, and his kingdom abides forever. Haggai chapter 2, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, 
the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Christ's body, the church, is his living temple. And he fills it, how? With the Holy Spirit, the glory of God. And all who have this Holy Spirit have the peace of God, the peace of Christ. Peace because we've been reconciled with God and peace, a calm in our souls because our sins have been forgiven. We no longer have a guilty conscience that constantly plagues us and accuses us. It's been cleansed in Christ. All of these are wonderful prophecies of Christ. And they've been perfectly fulfilled in him. I mean, Jesus himself said so. He said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I certainly didn't give you an exhaustive list, just a sampling, but it's there. Search the scriptures and see the glory of Christ. This is the gospel of God that was promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's one last example that I want to share with you of how the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. And that is the example of Abraham. Before he was called Abraham, he was called Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abram, being a thinking man, said, But Lord, what will you give me, saying that I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I don't have a physical son. I don't have a physical seed, a descendant. How is this possible? And in Genesis 15, God says, This one shall not be your heir, referring to Eliezer, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then the Lord brings Abram outside and he has him look up at the, at the night sky and the stars of heaven and he says, count them if you can. So shall your descendants be if you are able to number them. And then the key verse is this. And he believed. He believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. That's the key that unlocks salvation and always has been, loved ones. Do you believe the word of God? Are these words that I'm speaking to you this morning just words? Or are they life, bread that you feast on in your soul? I pray the latter. Abram believed God. And how did the fall of man begin? We just talked about that in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve believed the lie, didn't they? The lie of the devil rather than the truth of God. So, isn't it fitting that salvation comes through believing the truth, the reversal of the lie? It is about believing God and believing his promises. And in this particular context with Abram, God promised him a son. And we see that that son, the promise of the son was fulfilled. His name was Isaac. He's the promised son. But as is true of prophecy in Scripture, prophecy is fulfilled on multiple horizons in Scripture. You have near-term fulfillment, Isaac is born. And then you have the far-out fulfillment on the horizon, Jesus Christ, the seed, the promised seed, and the son who would come through the loins of Abram. And Abraham trusted in that promise. It came through Isaac, but he saw Christ. Well, why do I say that? Paul references this exact event in Galatians chapter 3. And he says, the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham. Amazing. The scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying this, in you all the nations shall be blessed. And he believed it. And then Jesus, 
As we talked about last week in John chapter 8, when he was speaking to the Pharisees, he recounts this event with Abraham. And he says to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. And the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old yet. How is, that, how is it that you have seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. He spoke and claimed the same title that God revealed to Moses from the burning bush. Who shall I say? Whom shall I say sent me, God, when I go to Egypt and to Pharaoh to release your people? I am that I am has sent you, the ever-living one, the ever-existent one. And, of course, they wanted to stone him because they recognized, the Jews recognized that he was speaking blasphemy in their ears. He was claiming deity. If this can't be. But Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Why? Because he saw it by faith. He was looking forward. He believed the promise of the son, the ultimate son who would be given. Listen, brothers and sisters, the gospel is a message of good news for all people, for all nations who share this faith of Abraham who believe God's word and have his righteousness credited to their account. This is the fundamentals of Christianity. It's 101. But we need to remind ourselves of it time and time again because these are glorious truths. And there's a lot of lies out there that would have us believe differently. These scriptures speak. They are alive. They're not merely words on a page. For the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Um, John MacArthur had a really, I thought, insightful commentary on that particular verse when he said, while the word of God is comforting and nourishing to those who believe, it is a tool of judgment and execution for those who have not committed themselves to Christ. It's a sword cuts two ways. How is the word affecting you this morning? Do you embrace these glad tidings? Because they're for you. This is the one message of hope that the world has ever had. And it's not just news that informs us. It should not just inform us, but it transforms us from within. This gets back to the power Right? It's the power of God unto salvation. This is the same word, the Logos, the eternal word, by whom God created all things. When he spoke and he said, let there be light, it was Christ who was creating the light and everything that has been made. And it is he, we're told, who also sustains all things, holds all things together. It is that same word which now speaks to you through the scriptures through the prophets, through apostles like Paul, and I pray through me this morning. It comes forth as great light that pierces the darkness. It draws some, and it repulses others, but it will have an effect on you. It's the word of life. I want to close with just a passage from Acts chapter 3, where Peter does... Uh, a wonderful recounting of what we've been talking about. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. 
Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. The prophets and of the covenant which God made with with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. This is the message of the gospel, beloved, to turn us away from our sins, our iniquities, to give us true hope, a rock-solid assurance that our sins are forgiven and that glory awaits us, but not before we've suffered a while, a short time compared with eternity. This is a message that is uniquely found here in the Holy Scriptures. You won't find this message of the gospel in the holy books of Buddhism or Hinduism. You won't find it in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. It's not found in the Quran. It's found in the Holy Scriptures alone. God, help us all to embrace and love and be transformed by this word concerning his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, It is to you that we pray that all glory would be given and ascribed. For this is your word and your work which you have accomplished in Christ, which you planned and foreordained before the foundation of the world, but which you brought to pass in space. And that you prophesied time again in the Old Testament scriptures through your prophets faithful men who proclaimed and heralded your word. Even though they didn't have the light that we have today, they proclaimed what they did have. They believed what they had because you gave them eyes of faith to see what could not be seen with the naked eye. Father, I pray for us as your church here in Eagle. Help us to see with the eyes of faith. Help us to see all of life with the eyes of faith. Not to be overwhelmed by the bad news that is constantly bombarding us because we see Christ lifted up, glorified, reigning forever on his throne. He is victorious. He has crushed the head of the serpent and will one day cast him headlong into everlasting destruction, the lake of fire. Father, strengthen your people. Encourage your people with these words. Convict your people of sin. Forgive us, for we sin often, but we know that you are faithful to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness when we ask you. In the name of Christ, amen.